And you're like, wait, where's Juanita? Oh, she had to move out because she couldn't afford to stay because the apartments are, apartment rents are going up. Oh, damn. So now gentrification is messing with my dinner table. Now yeah. it's become personal. Now it's not just a political issue. Now it's a relational issue. Uh, you're messing with my friendships. You're messing with my relationships. That begins to make the stories, that begins to take the, the implications of something like gentrification and it humanizes it. Welcome, welcome, one and all, to chapter 35 of the Let's Give a Damn podcast. My name is Nick Lapara. I love that you're here. Thank you so much for being with me today. I hope you won't regret the time you're about to spend with me and with my guest. Before I introduce said guest, I would love for you to hear uh, and watch both ears and eyes a talk that I gave recently uh, at Creative Mornings in Nashville. If you want to find that talk, you can go to youtube.com forward slash Nick Lapara, or you can go to my Facebook page. You can find it there. Find that talk. It's 29 minutes long. I hope, I trust you'll find it helpful. I know so many did, and I would love for you to watch it. Please give me any feedback you have. And also, many of you have been asking about the TEDx talk I gave in Chicago a few weeks ago. Now we're going on four or five weeks. Many of you have wanted to watch it, and I want you to watch it so badly. They had some technical difficulties with the audio. It's still going to come out, which I'm very glad for because I want you to watch it and hear it. But it's taking them a little bit longer to finish, to complete those videos and get them on the TEDx platform, uh, YouTube, Facebook, all of that. So be patient. Thank you for asking. Thank you for the tons of interest uh, from you all, from people on social media, from podcast listeners that want to watch and enjoy that talk. When it comes out, I hope you will not be disappointed. I had so much fun giving the talk. I hope you'll have a lot of fun watching it and learning from it. So now that we have that out of the way, today's podcast guest, Rich Perez. My buddy Rich lives in New York City. He is a pastor. He is a father. He is a husband. He is a great neighbor. He is a community, people-centric kind of person, loves people. And you're going to hear so much of that in our talk today. We talk uh, growing up in New York City. This homie has lived 29 of his 33 years in the same neighborhood, in the same borough of New York City. I find that fascinating, and we talk about this a little bit in the podcast, I find that fascinating on multiple levels. One is, I've never experienced that. From the time I was six or seven on, we have moved all over the country, all over the world. Once I got out on my own, I continued to travel the world, living out of a couple suitcases, a couple bags at a time, and I've never really quit that, even as an adult, four years here, four years there, a year and a half here. And so I always find it fascinating when someone finds a place that they just stay and they they really dig down super deep roots in that place. So we talk that, what else? Oh, we talk about his book, Mi Casa Uptown. That's coming out actually, if you're listening to this podcast on November 1st, when it releases, it's book release day for Rich uh, for his book, Mi Casa Uptown you should go buy that. We're going to put the links in the show notes. We'll also share it afterward in the outro of the podcast. We talk gentrification. We talk 
pros and cons of being in a place for a long period of time. It was a fascinating conversation. Rich is wise, Rich is smart, Rich loves people, and you're gonna enjoy our conversation together. He definitely, 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 in so many ways, gives a damn. So I'm gonna be quiet now. I can't wait for you to hear this conversation. Here we go. Hello, everyone. I am so excited to be with you today, and I have my friend Rich Perez on the line. Uh, Rich, how are you? I'm doing well, man. I'm doing well. How are you? I'm fantastic. I'm so excited you're here, and I'm so excited to introduce you to the Let's Give a Damn family. Um, you ready for this? I am, man. I'm ready. Good, I'm ready. good. And you, and you're uh, you're are you in your neighborhood in New York City, or where are you? I am, man. I'm in the heart of uh, Uptown. Uh, so I'm in a neighborhood called Inwood, uh, Washington Heights, kind of just the upper, upper northernmost part of the island of Manhattan. So that's what nice. we're calling it. Nice. Well, I'm excited. And we'll, that neighborhood, Uptown, is going to come up quite a bit in this talk. I'm really excited. So let's, um, before we get to Today is launch day for your book. We're going to talk about that. Um, well, when they're listening to this, it'll be launch day for your book on, on November 1st. But before we get to that, let's go back. I'd love to go back as far as you want to go into your the beginnings of your life, your childhood. What I want to do is get a sense for who you are, what are the things that shaped you, who are the people that shaped you, were there any circumstances, good and bad, that really impacted you and made you who you are today. So just give us a uh, two, three, five, ten minute rundown on um, Rich Perez from the beginning up until up until now, up until close to now. Yeah, word, word. Well, so I guess I'll I'll, I'll kind of give snapshots of my timeline up until this point. Um, you know, I might leave out some details that that might somewhat be important, but but we'll talk about those major pillars. So. My parents are both Dominican immigrants. Uh, my dad came here in 1981 uh, to kind of set up shop, find a job, find an apartment uh, in the neighborhood of Washington Heights, New York City. My mom came in 83 thereafter with my uh, older sister, who was five at the time, and then I came in 1984. So. I was born here to two Dominican immigrant parents, um, and that was huge uh, because family was huge for me. And both my parents were very, very involved in my life and in my siblings' life. And I was quite the anomaly because of that. You know, uh, kids in my neighborhood uh, at that time in the 80s, late 80s, 90s, up until the 2000s, even up until today, really. Um, about 53% of kids were growing up in a single parent home and that parent was usually the mom. So for me growing up and having both of my parents, not just physically there, but emotionally, mentally there and involved was a big deal. So, um, you know, that was my life early on. My parents were nominally Catholic, kind of high holiday Catholics, Christmas, Easter kind of thing. Um, we were agnostic, practically speaking. And so um, that was a big deal for us. Education, family um, were big values in our home. Um, siblings were big were a big deal. Relationships were a big deal. And I kind of grew up in that environment up until I was about 10 years old, 11 years old, when my mom um, was introduced to the idea of Jesus and kind of personal, consequential 
kind of a, a pervasive kind of faith where it existed far beyond just, you know, kind of externals or superficial kind of levels, but it really kind of penetrated all of life for her. Um, and so now faith and church became a real value to our home. My dad was your typical Dominican immigrant where he just worked really hard for our family. Um, he wasn't into the church environment even after my mom came to kind of a personal faith um, in the Christian tradition. Um, but he also didn't prohibit us from being part of the church. Um, he encouraged us. Um, you know, in the late 80s, early 90s, uh, Washington Heights in particular, um, New York City in general, was kind of in the crack cocaine era. Uh, our, our neighborhood um, was the crack cocaine capital. Uh, so because of where our neighborhood is situated, we kind of sit right at the center between a lot of major uh, locations. So Washington Heights, as I said earlier, is the northernmost part of the island of Manhattan. It's where the George Washington Bridge is. The George Washington Bridge connects us to um, New Jersey. It connects us to PA. Uh, and then on the other side, east of our neighborhood, was the Bronx, uh, upstate New York, Connecticut, and then further down, Massachusetts, Rhode Island. So um, we were kind of this kind of uh, this this liaison. It seemed like for you know the distribution of crack cocaine, and so that really affected our neighborhood. Um, you had a lot of drug dealers in this neighborhood, um, a lot of significant um, you know drug busts, and that began to shape a lot of the neighborhood narrative. And so for us, you know, my dad didn't want us to get involved in in any of that stuff, or even in the violence that's attached to that, and so. Though he wasn't in the church scene, he really encouraged us to be a part of the church uh, because it gave us an, an, an alternative to just being out on the street and doing something that perhaps we could uh, get ourselves in deep, in deep trouble with. So family, faith now in this season of life when I was about 10, 11, became a really big part of our family. Education has always been a huge deal, as is probably with most immigrants uh, that come to this country. And they want their It's a way kids. that they can, you know, step up and move forward, hopefully. And oh, dude, yeah. The idea of, you know, progresando, as we would say at home, progressing forward, really is such a big part of that is becoming un profesional, becoming a professional. And school plays, of course, such a big part of that. So when immigrant parents come to this country and they perhaps abandon careers that they had uh, back in their uh, countries of origin and they come to the States and practically with nothing, um, they do all that they can to position their kids in a place to, to succeed and to thrive, right? That, that's just, it just makes sense. So education, family, and now faith become a part of the dynamic in our home. Uh, and those become pretty significant throughout the course of my life. Um, I come to uh, my own kind of faith experience when I was 15 um, and I started to really grow in my faith. Uh, there was a bit of tension, however, because that's kind of your sophomore year in high school. High school becomes kind of this really social, interesting <laughs> experiment for, for kids that age. I played sports and we didn't have Steph Curry's back then that made faith in sports cool and made the, made it, made it possible. You know what I mean? We had a few dudes that kind of straddled that, that those two worlds, but nothing that really encourage dudes in that were athletes to kind of be outspoken about their faith. And so I really wrestled with that early on, kind of took that with me into college and 
you know, college is definitely not the place you want to go unsure of yourself. I mean, it only it only creates more disaster, it seems. And so I kind of wrestled with that in college and kind of made a shipwreck of my own journey and my own faith, so to speak, and came back home, plugged myself into more accountability, people that would help me walk that out a bit more faithfully. And so relationships at that point became a big deal. One of the biggest kind of episodes of my life in that season was getting connected with an organization called Nikki Cruz Outreach. Nikki Cruz, if you don't know much about him, man, he's got a, a New York a New York Times bestseller called Run Baby Run. It's his story. He's a gang member in the 50s and four, 40s and 50s and even 60s. Uh, came to know Jesus, has this dramatic and radical experience in the faith in his faith journey. Um, and he's now traveling the world uh, or has traveled in the last several decades sharing his story uh, and leading people into this incredible kind of spiritual um, experience um, in his faith tradition. Um, that was a huge episode for my life. I was into the arts. I, was, I studied film production in college, so I was always an artsy guy. Um, and this ministry, we traveled domestically and internationally doing music and doing performing arts in kind of high violence neighborhoods, uh, again, in the States and internationally. It's where I met two significant friends, uh, Andy Minio and Alex Medina. Alex, I've known, you know, for about almost 30 years at this point, we met at church, uh, but our relationship really deepened there because we did work together. We did ministry together. We did music together. We did performing arts together. Uh, Andy and Alex and I met at City College and then we connected in this ministry again and we started doing music together. Man, those years really shaped, quite frankly, all of us. Uh, David Ham, who was the executive director of that ministry, played such a huge role in our mentorship and in our discipleship and our growth. Um, and so we did that for about eight years together. That was another huge point in my life uh, because it took relationship and it kind of took it outside of the bounds of the people that I knew. But now I began to realize that influence can really only happen deeply and, you know, kind of transformatively through relationship. Uh, up until that point, the idea of church influence and, you know, church work felt somewhat cold. You kind of go in, you do a job and you kind of peel out. Um, and those eight years for me really shaped the way that I understood church work and church ministry, so to speak, whereas, man, compassion and relationship really precede influence. I mean, if you want to have influence in someone's life, if you want to, if you want to see kind of transformation happen in a person's life, um, we cannot be so foolish to think that that could happen without a level of relationship with the person or the peoples that you want to have influence with. You know what I mean? And so that was a pretty significant season of my life. You know, at this point, I was dating a girl for about four years, who's my wife now. We married in 2007. Uh, we moved upstate New York to kind of prepare ourselves for the work. We knew we wanted to come back and start a church uh, in New York City. And that concept in and of itself, we can, we can spend an entire podcast talking about the idea of starting a church. I mean, it's just, it was mind blowing to me. I had no framework for that. Initially, my wife and I wanted to start a community center. And then throughout the course of the years that we were upstate, what we realized was God wanted us to start a church that felt like community. Um, and so he kind of blended our visions together and 
kind of reinvigorated what we, um, what, how we should look at the church, um, you know, as opposed to some kind of isolated, cold institution that exists for itself. You know, the church is a vibrant, vivid organism that exists for the world around her. Um, and so that began to really shape the way I understood the church. But we came back. I worked as a high school teacher for a year while we got our feet settled back in the neighborhood. Um, within that year, I did a lot of vision casting, a lot of fundraising. And about two years later, um, we had raised enough money for me to kind of focus and go full time at building this church up. And um, we just celebrated five years uh, as a church this past April. Obviously, a ton of details I didn't share, but I figured details that we can try to pull out with questions and, and all yeah. that other stuff. But the themes of family, relationship, and trust building have shaped not only my life, but the life of the work that I do from birth. Dude, super helpful uh, snapshot. One of the best that I've received. Just, uh, yeah, felt very well-rounded. A couple questions out of that first part of your story. So this one, just wondering if you have any insight here, because I know this to be true. You mentioned it again, the importance of family for for you, for your family, for immigrants, for a lot of, you know, I, I'm the son of a Guatemalan immigrant and refugee. Um, so I get it. They, you know, they, they all came over here right, you know, before I was born. But family is so important. Family is everything. Like you can still find my, I'm one of 12 siblings. I don't live near most of my siblings, but you can still see them eight of them live in the same area and you can still see most of them getting together at least once a week for family meal, even today, you know, and they're all, you know, in their 20, late teens, twenties, thirties, um, family's hugely important, but why do you think that is right? So I'm just looking for a little insight. You don't have to have anything profound to say here, but I've done a ton of like global traveling, um, in a lot of Asian countries in India. I've been all over Africa um, in a lot of Hispanic countries. Like family is everything, right? You forsake even a better career, a better life for the sake of your family, which is not really the case in a lot of the Western world, a lot of many parts of America even. Why do you think certain peoples take that so seriously? Like some of them live together and they do life together where a lot of my friends haven't spoken to their family in a year or two years, haven't seen their brother's or sisters since they were younger. Like I hear these stories all the time and it just baffles me. Um, any insight? You don't have to have anything profound, but if you do, I'd love to hear your thoughts. No, no, yeah. I mean, I think you, you did a really good job at framing the question, right? I think we have to look at this in the backdrop of our Western rhythms. I'm only going to speak for New York, but I think it kind of, you know, I think it kind of hits on, on Western thinking altogether. But New York, I love my city so much. And New York is the mother of so beautiful influences. But we have decided as a city to lead with consumerism. The idea of how to produce for self, how to take care of self, there's a very individual approach to life when it comes to Western thinking. How much can I consume rather than contribute? How much can I accumulate rather than be generous with? The rest of the world doesn't really think that way. The framework isn't individual. For most of the rest of the world, there seems to be a very communal approach to life because perhaps they have realized 
that some of the most significant things about the individual's life must involve the community. Finding the person that you're going to marry. I mean, we talk about this at our church. There's three major life decisions that we'll make, right, for the most part. Uh, Location, where you will live. Vocation, what you will do. Relationship, who you will do it with. Oftentimes, we make those decisions kind of consulting other people here in the West, but most of the time, we make those decisions by ourselves. Really, the only, the only voice that really matters when making those decisions are our, our own. We probably invite people's voice into, those, into that decision-making process when we're probably 85, 90% of the way into our decision, at which point, it doesn't really matter what you have to say, Nick. I'm going to marry this person no matter what advice you have because I'm 90% of the way into this decision. Other cultures I've learned don't process that way. They don't make decisions like life, like vocation, location, and relationship without the consultation, without the advice, without the counsel of the community around them. We very seldom, if at all, learn alone We don't heal alone, and we don't love alone. Relationships determine healing. Relationships determine learning. Relationships determine growth, maturity. And so perhaps what other cultures have been able to realize, besides the fact that it kind of, um, you know, United States particularly is like the teenager in this conversation in comparison to, you know, other places in the world that have, they're kind of like the sage that's been around for a while. You know what I mean? We're, we're, the, we're the sophomore that thinks that knows everything but doesn't. And the sages are kind of like, no, we actually, we've been here around. Let us offer you some counsel. But we're too arrogant to take it. But the point is, I think when it comes to learning, healing, and growing, that stuff that, that happens fundamentally in community. And I think the church has somewhat adopted that idea of, you know, kind of a consumer individual approach to life. It's personal faith, it's personal growth. And while to some degree that is true, um, we have in the process forsaken or abandoned or even forfeited the idea of growing, learning, healing, loving together, um, which is what I believe, you know, God has intended from the very beginning, right? That we would grow, that we would know, you know, weird in the sense that they're, they're kind of, their dense themes like holiness and dense themes like, um, you know, walking in the way of Jesus, uh, things like faith, that has always been designed by God to be something that happens in community. So again, I, I think the reason why family is so big, especially to the immigrant community, is because those immigrating into the States are typically immigrating in from a culture that is not so influenced or as deeply influenced by Western thinking like, uh, as the United States. And family, for the person outside of the Western framework, has been such a vital role, perhaps because they've come to understand the interdependent nature of our existence. And, and we, we can't make major decisions like family and uh, who we marry and where we live and spend our lives and what we do for a living without deeply considering what what the people you love and respect think about that because we've we've grown to so appreciate their voice and their voice has now 
has the weight to shape our lives. And, and we actually like that as opposed to us resisting it here in the West. Does that make sense? Super. Yeah, it makes total sense. Very, very helpful. Thank you for, thanks for sharing that. I, and you, you communicated things that I was already thinking and know because I'm a global person that spent so much time overseas and, and you confirmed a lot of it from your perspective and you were, you were very spot on. I, I hope people found that helpful. Another question from your story. So you talked about your, a little bit about your faith. Uh, you're a pastor, your church, you know, it's five years old. What is, the purpose of the church, in your opinion, in your view? And here's the context for that question. You know, we've had people of Muslim faith on this podcast, people of Baha'i faith, people of no explicit faith. And I know this is true because a lot of people have communicated this to me uh, that listen to this podcast. I've had conversations with so many people on text, on DM, with people that listen. Like, I know that some people, as you were communicating that, um, either said or felt like, well, they've been hurt by the church, right? And so they're, I, I've literally heard them say like, fuck the church. Like, no, that's, I've been burned. I've been hurt. I can't go back there. This happened, that happened. There was abuse, verbal, emotional. There's so much wrong with, you know, what goes on sometimes inside of the capital C church, right? This global, there's global people that say I'm a Christian or I'm a this or I'm a that. So that's the context, right? There's, there's people that do adhere to some the same faith that you do on this podcast, and then many that don't. So for those listening, to give them kind of context as we go through the rest of this conversation, what is the purpose of the church, and why are you excited to be a part of it? Yeah, that's a fantastic question, man. And that's good framework. So, you know, I guess I can approach this question in, in two ways, right? One, what I believe God intended the church to be, and two, the opportunities that we have as a church, a kind of global church, to be that and what, why that makes me excited. But perhaps maybe a caveat to all this is perhaps also admitting the ways that we failed to be what God intended to be. So first, let me just, I, I guess, say what I, what I believe God intended the church to be. So I was actually just talking about this with a few, with a few friends uh, the other day. From the very beginning, God has intended his people, uh, the people that, he's, that he uniquely relates to, to be a blessing to all the families of the earth. You know, and by blessing, it means that you would actually invite the world around you, being the people of God, that you would invite the world that is around you, whatever context you find yourself in, and that you would offer what uniquely refreshes you. So this is the idea of hospitality for me. Hospitality isn't simply opening the doors to your apartment or to your home, though it involves that. I think at the heart of unique, special, radical hospitality is the idea of offering to the world around you the very things that refresh you, right? So not the, not the mm. scraps, not what's left over, but the very things that refresh you, you would offer them. God has intended for his people from the moment of Abraham, which I know a lot of, a lot of different faiths and practices find a lot of connection there with, with that um, spiritual figure. From the very beginning with Abraham to a man like Moses, to men like Joshua, all through Jesus, and then of course the church that would follow after Jesus' example, is to be a blessing to all the families of the earth. When God called his people to be unique and distinct, in other words, holy, right? I know that again, I want to be careful just to not overuse that word because it, it, it needs so much ex explanation. 
But the idea, the idea of being holy simply means to be distinct for the purpose that God has prepared. And I think the reason why God did that, why he called his people to be distinct and to be holy is so that they would live compelling lives, not so that they would lord over their distinction over people, which is where I think the church has often failed. We have seen our call to be different. We have seen our call to be uh, distinct and to be holy as an opportunity to hold it over people that don't look like us, don't think like us, don't value the things that we do, don't believe the convictions that we have, uh, which is where we get the phrase, you know, holier than thou, or man, you think that you are better because you are different. And I think what God intended from the very beginning uh, for, of Israel, in Israel's history at least, is that they would be different, not so that they would lord it over those that are different than them or not following in the ways that, that God um, had prepared, but so that they would be compelling to invite them into that. This idea of holiness is meant to be an invitation to the nations around Israel. And I think it's meant to do the same for the church of Jesus today, that we would live in such a way that is radically generous, radically hospitable, radically different, radically loving, radically merciful, radical advocates of justice in such a way and for such a reason that would cause curiosity and it would be a compelling invitation for those around us that don't have or share the same convictions to be interested and have an opportunity to say, oh, I'm I want to be a part of what this God is doing among your people. But sadly, I, I think we, we fail at that. We don't often use our holiness as a form of invitation. I think we often use our holiness as a form of power and privilege uh, and distinction that actually casts people off further rather than invite them closer. And so I think the church, simply put, is to be an extension of the beauty the holiness, the distinction, and the power of God in this world. And we ought, to, we ought to steward that as a form of invitation and not as a form of um, marginalization. And I think at the heart of that invitation is God using his distinction through Jesus to invite us in closer, to offer, to extend forgiveness and mercy, um, and to create a space where we can actually experience God in a deeper way. Um, and he doesn't cast us off further, although he is God. He doesn't uh, further marginalize us. He calls us into a space. He invites us into a space. And he says, man, this is the culture that is in this space. Um, and he invites us into that. And so the church has done well in some ways, and it's not done so well in other ways. Um, but that's what I think the church is. First of all, it's a really helpful explanation in, in the way that you ended it there. That's true of everything, right? And I think that's something to always remember about people that look like us and think like us and people that don't look like us and think like us is that as long as humans are involved, it's going to be broken and shitty sometimes uh, because we're we're imperfect, flawed people that I'm always every single day, at least once a day, and this is not a joke, and you can probably uh, you know say amen to this as well is at least once a day I have to apologize to, not have to, need to, want to apologize to my wife and my kids separately, like at least once a day, because I'm not a great husband uh, many times and, and, and not a great father, you know? And so I try and I, you know, read books and I have mentors and people speaking into my life, but even with all of that and me like really trying to 
be the best version of myself that I can at least once every single day. I have to get down my, my boy's height, you know, at two years old and just apologize to him and then my daughter and my other daughter and my wife. And so anyway, that's a really great way to kind of wrap that up is like, it doesn't matter if you claim that you serve and worship and adhere to this faith, you're still messed up as a person. Yeah. And I think that's the uniqueness in some way that in the Christian tradition, uh, right, that what that what saves us is not our effort to flawlessly follow the way that God has called us to live. Um, but what saves us is, in fact, the ways in which Christ has flawlessly followed what God asked us to do. It's this idea of, I'm going to step in your place. And our responsibility as Christians, my buddy said this one time, and I'll never forget it, it's very simply put, he said, the Christian's responsibility is to always be inspired. And, you know, I found that to be so simple, but also so profound because it is the work of the Christian to remain inspired by what in our faith tradition Jesus has done for us. Because as you said, every day I have something to confess. Every day I have something to admit that I didn't do right. Um, and just by sheer nature of my deficiency and inadequacy, um, even as a leader, I, I, I have to turn to something that is far more consistent, far more pure, far more uh, faithful than I am. And I need to constantly turn my eyes, turn my affections toward that that is flawless and that that will inspire me to be better at loving my wife, be better at loving my kids, be better at loving my neighbor um, because Again, even as you said about your wife and your kids, I know that I don't do this perfectly with my with my neighbors as well, and yet God has called me to do it. My responsibility and the responsibility of a Christian is to remain inspired by the one who has done that. And I think that that is huge. It's huge for my every day. It's huge for my every moment. So. That's helpful, man. Um, so as you know, because you're on here, you're on the Let's Give a Damn podcast. We're a, a network, a family of people that want to uh, give more dams to tomorrow than we did today, right? About the people, places, and things around us. And you've done that in so many ways. Can you share some of the ways that you've done that? I mean, you've been... So you sh when we were talking on the phone the other day, prepping for this call, you had said that you're, you've spent 29 of your 33 years in the same neighborhood, in the same city, in the same area. And that has so many advantages to it, something that I personally have never experienced uh, because I've just been on, on the run since I was nine years old, traveling from place to place. But you've obviously experienced some real deep connection to the people in the place around you, the people in the places around you. So can you share some of the ways that you and your community are giving a damn, have given a damn that will just give for people out there that have lived in a place a long time, maybe they'll be able to see some uh, correlation there and they can identify with some of the things you've gone through and the ways that you've given a damn. Can you share some of those? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, man. So I've been in the Washington Heights, Inwood area. Uh, I'm 33. I've been here for about 29 years. My wife and I spent three years living upstate New York and then one year just kind of moving about. But yeah, I've been here for 29 years. That's not an uncommon narrative. I mean, in, in our neighborhood at least. But what is an uncommon narrative is that it's celebrated. I don't often mm. hear 
folks celebrating the fact that you've been in the same place for such a long time. No, it's usually the opposite, right? Yeah. Like, oh my gosh, you've never yeah, been out and about. Yeah, right. There's this narrative that says, if it's familiar, you failed. Especially for the inner city kid, the narrative is, if you want to be successful, if you want to make it, you certainly have to get out of here. There's no way that you can succeed or to any degree if you stay here. So choosing to stay here um, in part has been to rewrite the narrative and say, no, you can be successful, you can be faithful even if you stay or because you stay. Um, and so for us, you know, giving a damn is sticking around. <laughs> also too, and this is kind of just plays into the kind of the, the sub-Christian culture, a, a lot of the sub-Christian culture says, go and share your message, right? Go and share your message. So this, there's always this idea of going and going sometimes has always been tied to like, you know, a more exotic place or a foreign yeah. place because foreign is always exciting. Exotic is always appealing. But what about the things that are familiar? What about the things that you see every day? It, it is true that familiarity does breed contempt. And it is true that we often objectify the things that we're most familiar with because we just see them all the time. We're used to them. Yeah. Oh, that's that's that guy. Yeah, it's whatever. Let's just keep moving. Oh, I see him all the time. Oh, I see this. I know the street like the back of my hand. Yeah, it's just this. And we tend to disinvest to things that we deeply are familiar with. And I said, what if familiarity didn't breed contempt? What if it actually bred love? What if mm. it produced interest? What if, what if it produced investment instead? Because you know it well. And that is, my brother, precisely the narrative that we're always pushing. Like, you know, I'll speak for myself. I'm often so afraid of being deeply known, my good, my bad, my ugly, because I fear that if you know all of me, if you become deeply familiar with me, you'll become tired of me and you won't stick around. And so I said, well, what if I knew more of you? And the more I knew of you, I didn't push you away in contempt but I drew close, closer in love. And so giving a damn for us, you know, a, as a church community is making the active decision to stay. That has sociopolitical implications. I think that has socioeconomic implications. I think that has spiritual implications. You know, a, as most of our global cities you know, there's a there's a lot of like change happening. You know, urban landscape is really changing. You you know, you might want to call it gentrification. People call it something else. You know, community revival, community renewal. But the fact is, communities are changing, and transiency is like our second cousin. We know that we know that we know that culture well. And I think that to give a damn is to, in some ways push up against what's normal, push up against what has become normal, push up against what has become somewhat of status quo and redefining what is normal for the good of those that are in the context that you're serving in or context that you're living in. So when we started the church back in 2012, about six of us lived in the neighborhood and then the rest were kind of just kind of commuting in. Uh, five years later, in our last polling, 75% of our members, church members, are in walking distance to one another. And they're all in this kind of congressional district in the neighborhood. That 
changes the way that you think about your work. Because now if, you know, the way that we say it here at the church is you care about gentrification because it's affecting your dinner table. In other words, every Tuesday night you have Juanita from down in the first floor for dinner. Every Tuesday night you have Juanita and Jamal and Asia coming in for dinner. But you haven't seen Juanita in the last three weeks at dinner. Mm. And you're like, wait, where's Juanita? Oh, she had to move out because she couldn't afford to stay because the apartments are, apartment rents are going up. Oh, damn. So now gentrification is messing with my dinner table. Now yeah. it's become personal. Now it's not just a political issue. Now it's a relational issue. Uh, you're messing with my friendships. You're messing with my relationships. That begins to make the stories, that begins to take the, the implications of something like gentrification and it humanizes it. it. It says, yo, this is a real problem that's affecting real people. And so having encouraged our people to stay in the neighborhood and move into the neighborhood and advocate for the, advocate for the neighborhood has really changed the way that we communicate, we care. You know, which is, I think, to, to your question, you know, how do we give a damn? Well, man, we care about rising rents because we live here. <laughs> yeah. And our na- and we have relationship with our neighbors and it affects them. But man, we care about the socioeconomic divide that exists in our neighborhood between the affluent and the poor. We care because, you know what, I live east of Broadway. I live west of Broadway. I live on Broadway. Man, we care about, you know, that New York Times article that went up with the two Google dudes that wanted to essentially you know you know do away with bodegas because they had yeah. this idea to create a kiosk that would essentially wipe out all bodegas you know i care about that you know why because yeah. i have friends that have bodegas in this neighborhood and i know as the as the son of an immigrant that bodegas are far more than just a convenience store where you pick something up that bodegas are somewhat of an oasis for the immigrant culture whether it's the hispanic or the middle eastern you know, culture where bodegas are pr- pretty prominent. Like, yo, I don't just go to a bodega to pick up a, a item. Sometimes I go to a bodega and I don't even buy anything. I just go there to just hang, hang and talk, talk politics, chill, and talk about the Yankees game, talk about all this stuff. And it's like stripping an element of who we are. And so all that to say, all those things matter to me deeply and relationally and emotionally because we have decided to say we are part of this community because we care. We give a damn. We don't want to just parachute in and kind of do this cold work. And and I think that's ineffective. I think it's inauthentic. I think it's not compelling. It's not inspiring. Um, and so those are some ways, uh, at yeah. least, that we've kind of you know processed some of that stuff. Love it. So let's spend the last few-ish minutes of our conversation talking about your book, because I want everyone that's listening right now to go pick up a copy because I know it'll be it'll be inspiring, it'll be compelling, and it'll be educational. It'll be all of that. So this is your chance to talk about the book, pitch it in a way that people will shut this conversation off midway and go order it. Again, because it's being released on November 1, release day for the book. We're excited about being a part of that release. Um, yeah, so just give us the, give us a lowdown. What's it about? How'd it come about? You know, the book is called Mikasa Uptown, Learning How to Love Again. It's like I mentioned earlier, right? It seems as if the more we get to know each other, uh, the more we are disappointed, right? When the scars of our friends and our families and our neighbors are exposed, the more tempted we are to turn and run. But but I think there's another way to approach familiarity. And I, I, I talk the vantage point of having been in this place for as long as I have 
and know it as well as I have and say, you know, you know what? I know the good, I know the bad, and I know the ugly of this place. And yet I'm compelled to love it more rather than turn um, and run from it. And I said, what if we took that approach in our relationships? What if we took that approach with the places where we find ourselves for whatever length of time? You know, you and I spoke about our different narratives. Like you've been, you know, your life has been characterized by travel, uprooting and uprooting and uprooting. Mine has been the opposite, planting and not moving. And whatever length of time God has us in any place that we often must ask ourselves that I kind of challenge us in the book is, what have I done with where God has placed me? I think we have a really, oftentimes it feels like we have a really poor approach to place. And what I try to do in this book is celebrate place. Place has a significant role in shaping you and in you shaping it. And so Mikasa Uptown is me telling the story of having grown up here to immigrant parents uh, I hit a lot of themes, everything from family to rootedness to city life to parenting in city life. Um, and I even talk, and this is the, the this is the book that I'm that I'm really excited about is I, I tackle a lot of kind of my Dominican American identity, and, and and I do that in the backdrop of my faith, particularly kind of like Western Christianity that seems very white uh, sometimes, and having stepped into my Christianity into my faith with a lot of questions about my ethnic identity. I'm Dominican. I grew up eating mangu and huevo frito and cebollado and you know mm. rice and beans and listening to merengue. But every other aspect of my life was pizza, hamburgers and french fries, listening to the Jay-Z and Nas and hip hop head and you know having to literally switch languages in, in, you know, I might be talking to my mom in Spanish in one moment and then my boy taps me on the shoulder and he wants to talk about Jay-Z's new album. In a moment, I have to not only switch languages, but I have to switch process. I have to switch the way that I think. And that for so long had become an obstacle to knowing who I was. I was insecure. I, I, I felt like I belonged everywhere, but I didn't belong anywhere all at the same time. And my Christian framework made it even more complicated because my Christian, the Christian experience in the West seems so white. And so the categories that Christianity offers, I couldn't find myself in any of them. And so I really wrestled with that early on. And it's really only been the last three, four years that, you know, God has helped me to ask better questions, listen uh, more intently, uh, speak to people. Uh, that would understand my journey. And so I talk a lot about that. And so the idea of family, relationship, place, how important place is, what role does place play in our lives, um, and then our ethnic and kind of faith identities and journey, where do they intersect, how do they marry, all of that. It's, it's being able to confront what is often so familiar in your life and rather than looking at the familiar with contempt, that we can actually look at it through a new set of eyes uh, that actually produce love and actually produce interest and fascination uh, rather than us turning away and, and just running from it because it's it's the unassuming thing. It's the thing that we're like, ah, oh, yeah, I know that. Yeah, I know that. I'm familiar with that. And so you disinvest. And, and I say, well, what if we took a different approach? And so it's all that. I love it. I know my copy's on the way. I can't wait to read it for a, a lot of reasons, but one of them is mainly because I, I'm such a people person and I have a personality that comes alive when I get to be around people and hang out with people and mentor people and be mentored by people. 
And because of my kind of globe-trotting, traveling days for most of my life, I'm excited to learn from you. I think I have a lot to learn from you. Um, because my wife and I have talked in, in the last nine years. We've been married for nine years. We've lived in nine different homes in four different states in the last nine years. And our kids have moved and moved and moved. And we want to find home. We talk about this so often. I love, I don't regret one bit living out of, you know, two suitcases for the last, virtually the last 20 years of my life with a few periods where we settled down for a little bit longer, long enough to put clothes in drawers. But but I, but I'm excited because I want to get there because I see the deep value of finding home. And I don't think I'll ever stop traveling, but I do want to find home base. I want to find the people that I get to, when I do go off and travel and do a project or go speak somewhere, I get to come home to my people, right? My neighbors and sit on my stoop and be there with those people for year after year after decade after decade, because I think that is going to teach, that's going to round my personality and my passions and desires out a little bit. I have one friend who's challenged me so much. He's one of my close friends, and he's he's a straight sh- shooter, no bullshitter. And he's he keeps telling me because you know we keep we keep moving for various reasons. In two weeks, we're moving to Nashville for a year. He keeps telling me. He says, Nick. He says, I need you. I want you. He said the world needs you to settle down because if you find that place that you call home, if you finally land somewhere. He said the best, we have yet to see the best of Nick when Nick gets into a place and stays year after year, decade after decade. And even though that's not yet, it's just clear that's not happening right now. And I told you this on the phone the other day, we want that to be New York City. I, I've, I've spent so much time in New York City and we want, for, the, for a lot of the same reasons that you've talked about, we want New York City to become home for us for the, for the rest of our lives. And so anyway, I'm so excited. I think I have a ton to learn from you. I'm real excited to get the book, and I hope so many people uh, that are listening do as well. Yeah, man, I appreciate that, man. That's a. I think we have so much to learn from each other. You know, I think this last year for me has been like learning how to expand even outside of the bounds of uptown. <laughs> you know what I mean? So th- there's definitely drawbacks to being so hyper local that you get that there's a world out there that begins to inform your locality. So there's so much to learn on both sides, man. But I appreciate you, dude. Appreciate you a ton. Dude, absolutely. Absolutely. Okay, so last question, if you have time. Uh, This is the question that I ask every single guest. I think I've asked everyone. It's a hypothetical. And someday your friends, your family, the people that you've known for 70, 80 years because you've lived in the same neighborhood together, when you die someday, and hopefully that's you have many more years on this earth, but someday you're going to die, and for some reason, I'm going to be the one that's going to give your eulogy. With all of your friends and family and, and church community and neighborhood community, everybody's there. They're all there, and I get the privilege of um, eulogizing your life. I get to talk about your, your life and your legacy. What do you hope, in, in just a few sentences, what do you hope that I'll say on that day about you? Outside of you saying that I deeply loved my family and my wife and my kids before I vow to love anyone else, I pray that you would say this. By grace, I became myself. I've been thinking a lot about this. In my journey to figure out who I am, who God has made me, wrestling through my ethnic identity, finding the intersections with my faith, I've realized that what God wants me to become is myself. So much of our identities in in our modern world is convoluted 
and made complex by so many different things, pressure, categories, and culture, that we've actually drifted away from who God has made us to be. And so pray that the journey ends with people saying, with God's help, Rich became himself. He became who he was. That's what I hope people say, man. I love it. I love it. Rich, thanks so much for joining us today. I, I'll put all the links uh, for the book and for Rich in the show notes. So go check those out, everyone. Rich, thanks so much for joining us. This was super fun. Yo, my brother, it was my pleasure. Thank you, man. Okay, we'll talk soon. All right, brother. Friends, thank you so much for spending a few minutes with Rich and me today. I hope you enjoyed our conversation. I hope you were challenged. Please go follow Rich on Twitter at RichPerez729. That's Rich, P-E-R-E-Z, 729. On Instagram, at RichPerez. Uh, you can follow Mikasa Uptown on Instagram, at Mikasa Uptown. Go check out MikasaUptown.com for videos, blog posts, different resources. And please check out the show notes on Medium. Go to Medium. I put all the show notes on Medium. I love that platform. So go to Medium, search Let's Give a Damn. You'll find all the podcasts, all the show notes, or you can go to letsgiveadam.com and get there as well. Check out the show notes because I'll have the link for the video, or sorry, for the book, or you can do what everyone else does and you can go to amazon.com or the Google and search for Mikasa Uptown Rich Perez. You'll find it there. Go buy the book, uh, support what he's doing. And if you enjoyed our conversation, go hit him up on Twitter and let him know that you enjoyed our time together. Thank you so much for being here today. I love that you joined me. I love that you're here with me. Um, as always, if you want to support what we're doing, leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. You can also screenshot you listening to the podcast, post it on your social media. It'll get people going to our podcast. And if you feel a little more generous than that, you can throw a few dollars our way by visiting patreon.com forward slash let's give a damn. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash let's give a damn. Every dollar helps us make more podcasts. None of it goes directly into my pocket to buy my coffee or to buy anything else. It goes right back into the production of these podcasts. I love you all. Thanks for joining me. I will see you very soon, a week from today. Have a good one. Bye.